Well, good morning again. We're about to embark on a study of the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Before we do that, just a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, you will be assisting me by reading passages of Scripture, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them in whatever form that takes. Joe Root did not tell you the rest of the story last night. I, I looked for an app that sounded like pages turning, and when I got it on my computer, it sounded like cards being shuffled, so I took it off. I'm still searching for one that will meet his satisfaction. So we're, we're, you're going to assist me in reading throughout the uh, next four messages. Also, we're not going to look at Malachi based on the chapter breakdowns. Those are relatively um, frustrating to, to the study of Malachi because Malachi is actually centered around a series of disputes between God and his people, and that's the way we're going to look at those passages for the next uh, four sessions. So some introductory material today. And, and then also we'll look at, at the uh, opening statement of Malachi and we'll look at the first disputation between God and the children of Israel. Tomorrow we'll look primarily at the second and longest and most complex of the disputations between God and Israel. And then in the third message we'll look at disputations three and four and then in the last message we'll look at five and six and the summary. So let's start off thinking about Malachi. There is virtually nothing known about this man named Malachi. You can search all of the literature, and there is virtually nothing to say about him. In fact, um, he is one of the least familiar prophets of the Old Testament. The book he wrote contains three sections you see them there. One is a superscription, and that's in the first verse of the book. Then there are a series of six disputations. Um, that's, that's just a big word for dispute or argument that God has against the children of Israel. And there are six of them, and they, they seem to be pretty clearly delineated in the book. And then there is a summary challenge in the last three verses of the fourth chapter. And that's the way we're going to look at this book over the next few days. The book of Malachi has two major themes. You'll see them running um, in the first three disputations. Malachi is really focused on the necessity of keeping the, the law of Moses. And that will, that will filter through the entire book. But he strongly emphasizes that theme during the first three disputations. And in disputation four, five, and six, there is preparation for the coming of the day of the Lord. Maybe a word on the Mosaic Covenant. It is difficult for us as Gentiles to understand how deeply ingrained in the mindset of the children of Israel was the law of Moses, or what is commonly referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. 
Moses was just about everything to these people, rivaled perhaps by Abraham, but Moses was the great lawgiver, he was the great deliverer, and the Mosaic Covenant is, is really what held these people so tightly together. Now, there were other covenants that God made with the children of Israel, and we'll refer to some of those as we go along, but they, they are these four, the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenant is the foundation of the other three major biblical covenants that God gave to Israel, the, the Abrahamic Covenant, and then there is something called the Palestinian Covenant, and the Palestinian Covenant spoke to Israel about their right to possess the land. You see it in the news today. It's all over the world news. It's the hot item in the Middle East. Israel claims that the, the land of Palestine is theirs. Arab nations claim that it is not theirs. And there has been nothing but war and fighting, hot war, cold war, ever since God promised this land to Israel. The third covenant is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is a reaffirmation of the promise to Abraham that there would be a kingdom of Israel forever. And specifically, the promise to King David that his seed would sit on his throne forever. And then there is, blessedly, the new covenant. And the new covenant is yet future for Israel. The new covenant, though, has tenets that apply to us. In fact, Grant asked the question at breakfast this morning about the importance of allowing the Spirit to, to speak Scripture into your heart. That is one of the elements of the new covenant. God says very clearly in Jeremiah 31 and, in, and also in the book of Ezekiel that he will engrave his law upon the hearts of his people. He does that today by the work of the Holy Spirit as we pray the word of God into our hearts, and he inscribes that word there. So you want to sort of keep these two broad strokes of the brush as we go through. Disputations 1, 2, and 3 have to do with the keeping of the law primarily. 4, 5, and 6 have to do with the anticipation of the coming of the day of the Lord. Malachi was probably written around 460 B.C. Again, that's an educated guess because we don't know anything about Malachi. But most likely, Malachi ministered prior to the, the um, coming back of Ezra and Nehemiah to Israel. Now, I want to I stop here and go off on a little bit of a sidebar. Malachi is considered a post-exilic prophet. If you look in your Bibles, in the table of contents, you'll see the prophets categorized as major prophets and minor prophets. Um, pretty standard, but, but really not very useful in terms of chronology. So bear with me a second as we look at this slide. This slide shows us that the majority of the prophets prophesied prior to the Babylonian exile, which began in 597 B.C., and it went until about 538 B.C. But I want you to notice that 
that these, these first ten prophets, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah, they prophesied primarily before the exile. So if you, if you read them and you, and you look at the, the, the tone of their message, they are calling Israel to repentance. They're telling them that there is bad things coming if they don't repent. They are talking to Israel prior to the, to the time that Nebuchadnezzar came and carried away the children of Israel to Babylon. Now, now you move over to the right side and the exilic prophets or the prophets who prophesied during the exile and Daniel, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. Remember Daniel? Daniel talks about being carried away into Babylon. Daniel had firsthand experience of what it was like for, for these young men um, in, from, from uh, Israel to be carried away into Babylon and made part of the king's court there in Babylon. And then we have three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and our Malachi. Uh, again, this, this is just a historic, chronological way to look at the prophets, and I think it's a much, uh, much more biblical way to look at the prophets because it makes sense out of what they're saying. If you just look at the major prophets, the the reason they're major is because they have the major amount of the content. So what? Uh, Just because because Malachi only has four chapters and Obadiah has only got one chapter doesn't mean that their message is any less important. So we want to keep that perspective in mind. Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. And he prophesied at a time that Israel would have been a very undesirable place to live. Very undesirable. Um, Now, Ezra probably would have come back to Israel in 458 B.C. And shortly after, then in 444, Nehemiah would have returned. The first captives would have come back to Babylon in about 538. So let's, I want to try to get this picture. They had the temple rebuilt by 516. So here, here come in 538, here come um, <clears throat> the captives back out of Babylon uh, into, into what typically we would now call Judah. And they were going to um, rebuild the temple. The temple was going to be finished in about 516. It was not going to be anywhere near the grandeur of Solomon's temple, but at the time it was the best they could do. But really Jerusalem at that point was just in ruins. There there were squatters from other nations. It was really a has-been nation at that point. In fact, Judah at that time was a territory of only about 20 by 25 miles in, in uh, dimension and had maybe 150,000 people. Um, if you read Ezra, uh, especially chapters 4 and 5, you recognize that the children of Israel were under tremendous opposition to rebuild the temple. The people around them did not want that to happen. <clears throat> they did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. So they didn't come back to a nation that was just waiting for them with open arms. Those captives came back to terrible conditions. As we read through the book of Malachi, we're also going to notice that the land itself was in a deplorable condition. Agriculture was bad. We're going to read about drought and pests and blight. You read about that in the other prophets as well. Widespread poverty. If you know your Old Testament even a little bit, 
you know that under David, that Israel was on the ascension. Israel was, was rising as a, as a power. And then when King Solomon, his, his son, took over, that was the zenith of, of the kingdom of Israel. It, it was opulent. It was royal. Solomon was known worldwide. And now it had plunged. It had been taken captive. It had been carried away. It had been disobedient to God. It had forsaken the, the Mosaic Covenant. Everything bad that Israel could do, they had done. And one of the curses that God said would come upon the children of Israel for disobedience was the desolation and destruction of their land. Land to Israel is a big thing because all the way back in the book of Genesis, God promised to Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and this nation would be blessed and this nation would be a blessing to others. At the time that Malachi began to prophesy, there was nothing great about the land of Israel. Uh, they were under the dominion of the Persian Empire. The land was spent. It was desolate. But even worse than all of that was the spiritual desolation of the people to whom God had given those brilliant covenants. He had given the law through Moses. He, he had given them prophets. He, God had done so much for the children of Israel, and they had at every hand rejected him. We're going to see that not only was the land a problem, but there was spiritual distress. There was a corrupt priesthood. There was the lack of adequate worship, the lack of tithing. There was family disunity. And here into this context walks the prophet Malachi. I think you can see pretty clearly that being a prophet, and especially being a prophet to those captives returning from exile would not have been a high-profile, desirable job. One would have to think long and hard about answering the call of God to this kind of ministry. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance for this next slide. It breaks about every rule of good PowerPoint, but here we go. The book of Malachi makes significant contributions to biblical revelation. And so I just put it all in one slide because I wanted to, and because it's all here for us to see it once. As we move through the book of Malachi this week, we are going to see the following. We're going to be reminded of the divine election of nations. We're going to look at that actually today. We're going to see the judgment on the priesthood, men who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, men to whom God had entrusted his chosen people were corrupt. And the necessity we're going to see in the sacrificial system of perfect offerings, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to make some application to ourselves when we get there about the quality of our sacrifices, the quality of our offerings to the Lord. We're going to see God's condemnation of divorce. And, and specifically, in this case, it is the aversion, what is called aversion-based divorce. We're going to see the prohibition against interfaith marriage. And we'll think about how that relates to the New Testament as well. We're going to see the Messiah as the purifier of a people. 
and and that that is a is is one of those themes that runs throughout the old scripture and moves into the new testament as well the day of the lord as a day of judgment on one hand and blessing upon another we're going to see that the day of the lord is 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 a horrible thing in terms of judgment but that it is a very positive blessed hope and experience for god's people the failure to tithe is defrauding God. And again, we're going to have to ask ourselves, are there elements of our worship that could be likened to the tithe, an inadequate tithe, the defrauding of God in our own worship? There's an emphasis on keeping the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to, we're going to have to think about that as well. You can say, well, but we're not under the law. We're not Jews. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. What relevance does that have to us? Well, I'm perhaps going to direct your attention to the 8th chapter of Romans in the first four verses and recognize that the standard there, the standard there is the righteousness of the law. Someone who is, who walks out of the side of the Spirit of God does not have the capability to fulfill the righteousness that is inherent to the law of Moses. And then we're going to look at the respective fates of the righteous and the wicked. We'll see there, and you may you may even find yourself wondering sometimes, why do ungodly people seem to be favored and blessed in this life? And I know godly people who struggle and suffer through life. Why is that? Children of Israel had the same questions. And then the final contribution is the prophecy of the ministry of the second Elijah. And we'll look at that as we move toward the end of the book. Let me talk a little bit about these disputations. One brother looked at my outline and kind of snickered a little bit at this word disputation. But I don't know what else to call it because that is what historically and, and grammatically it is. It's a rhetorical disputation. So when we look at the book of Malachi, it seems like there's a conversation going on between the prophet and the children of Israel. That's not really what's happening. Malachi is not necessarily quoting a specific person or a group of people in Israel. This is rhetorical. He is asking, he is setting up rhetorical um, um, argument, rhetorical questions that are being asked, assertions that are being made, and questions that are being asked. It's a very rare form of prophetic speech, and that's one of the unique features of this book. Someone were to ask you, what's, what's so special about the book of Malachi? You can say, right off the top of your head, well, because of the use of rhetorical disputations. You might not, Chris, but you could if you wanted. One thing I want to say about these, however, and that is that they do not dictate the content. They do not govern the content. The, there, and there's something else we're going to talk about that's even a little bit more esoteric, and but... The form that this book is written in, this doesn't govern the content. It serves the content. And these disputations serve the content very well. The, the book just kind of, I would admit, maybe I said this last night, I never really got all jazzed up about the book of Malachi until, until Pete gave me this assignment. Um, this form of interpretation of the book of Malachi to me just, just brings it up off the page. It's, it's just fascinating. So it's a series of questions and answers, assertions and questions. And it's, it's every disputation follows this form that you see right there. This is the basic form of every disputation. There, 
is an assertion by Yahweh regarding the children of Israel. Then there is a questioning by the children of Israel. And then there is a response of God to that questioning. And then there is a section of implications. Now, not every disputation is that simple, but every disputation follows that kind of a pattern, some more complex than others, especially the second disputation. So a disputation simply means that God has a dispute with Israel, and he wants to talk to them about it through the prophet Malachi. And we're going to see in the second disputation, um, uh, in, in, in really clear form, uh, these prophets were very brave men. These were men of faith. These were men who knew that they were sent of God. I can guarantee you, if you came back to, to, to Judah, and you came back as a prophet, and you came back and you faced this corrupt priesthood, you would have to have a lot of courage to stand up against that priesthood. Because this priesthood was doing things their way and had been doing their thing, that, their stuff their way for a long time, and Malachi stood right in the face of a very strong religious apparatus, and he tore it to shreds. So I want to reiterate that this... this outline that I have here, assertion, questioning, response, implication, is the basic form. It's going to vary a little bit, but this is the basic form. This is how a disputation works in prophetic discourse. Okay, I'm bringing this one up just because it's there, um, and some people make some real heavy traffic over this thing called a chiastic structure. Chiasm is a structure of reverse or inverted parallelism. It is, it's a way of writing that is really precise. It is something that Malachi does throughout the book, by which I mean his first disputation and his last disputation relate to each other. His second and his fifth relate to each other. His third and his fourth relate to each other. And then within those disputations, there is a language structure that's really kind of neat. But again, it doesn't really, it doesn't really have any special meaning. It doesn't have any special emphasis. It serves, uh, I guess it serves the message by, by providing very tight, very structured composition. Malachi is one of the most chiastic books uh, among the prophets. Um, that's all I, I wasn't going to say any more about it, and then this morning I threw in another slide just to show you what I mean by that, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But that's kind of the basic structure of the book, a little bit of the background of the book. We don't want to say go too far into that, but that's, that's sort of what we're dealing with here. Post-exile, Malachi is on the scene before Ezra and before Nehemiah. He, he is facing a, a, a disgruntled, disillusioned, uh, very small backwater nation, and he's trying to bring them to a point of conviction in certain significant areas, and then he's going to, he's going to make it very clear to them that if they don't change, there is a significant level of judgment that is coming, and if they do change, there is an even more significant level of blessing that's on its way. So let's start with the superscription. <clears throat> First verse of Malachi, 
Whoever is next in line, I'd like you to read that to us. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Literally, that is saying a message. Yahweh's word to Israel through Malachi. You see that there. This is Israel's message, excuse me, Yahweh's message to Israel. So the first thing we notice about this is that Yahweh, or God, is the author and the sender of this message. And he is sending this message to Israel. Now, you remember, you you can, you should remember, and I'm going to remind you of it, that by this time, Israel is actually two nations. And in fact, why don't we why don't we just look at that right now? I would like you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter ten. And you can read it out of your Bible. I'll put it up on the screen. But I'd like to read Second Chronicles chapter ten verses 12 through 19, that will give us some direction regarding the the, uh, division of the nation of Israel. And the reason I'm asking you to read these passages is because I want you to hear yourself reading in the Old Testament. I want you to appreciate the Old Testament. It's very easy for us in the study of the Scripture to get really focused on the New Testament, and I would be as guilty of that as anybody. I have some really specific uh, interests, areas of interest in my study, and most of that is New Testament. But the Old Testament, let me, let me just say it this way. You cannot fully understand your New Testament until you understand your Old Testament. You can, you can understand enough to be saved if you read the New Testament and nothing else. But if you really want to go deep in your understanding, you want, to, you, want to, you, you want to understand how God has worked from the very beginning of creation and how he will work until he consumes everything in Jesus Christ, you've got to see how it flows through the Old Testament. Now, there are differences of interpretation. There, there are different, you know, some people are, are uh, premillennial and some people are all millennial and some people are pre-tribulation and some people are mid-tribulation and some people are post-tribulation. There's a lot of, a lot of different interpretation of scripture that way. But, but one thing that everyone agrees on, and I respect their right to be wrong if they don't agree with me. Yeah, that, okay. What, what all of them agree is we go through scripture, everybody agrees that there is a movement through scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just, it's not just 67 books that are unrelated. Every book is related and, and there are, there are themes that go all through the scripture. And I want to encourage you young people, make it a point to read your whole Bible. Make it a point to know what God is doing. I, I I agree. You can get into Leviticus and into Numbers, um, and boy, that's kind of like watching paint dry sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, God inspired that to be there, so there's a reason for it to be there. And so I'm encouraging you to read your Old Testament. Know what it says. And, and what we're going to do this week is to help that is to have you read some of these passages out loud so it starts to sound familiar to you, the Old 
Testament. So go ahead, let's, let's read this passage together. So I'll go ahead and start. My father may bring you a present, but I will add to it. My father disciplined me with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king might rule not over the people, but the child was in God, that the Lord might perform his will. Which This was roughly in 930 BC. The kingdom was divided. The kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah, including the city of Jerusalem in the south. Terrible time in the history of the nation of Israel. So when Malachi speaks to Israel, He's not just speaking to the northern kingdom. In fact, he's, he's prophesying in the southern kingdom. I think what's happening here is, is the, he's prophesying according to the prophetic vision of a unified Israel. I, I, I don't think that, that it really is ever God's will that they were divided that way, but such as it was, this is what Malachi had to deal with. And when, when we, he'll sometimes speak specifically of Judah, sometimes he'll speak of Israel. I think that Malachi's heart and burden was for a united Israel. So let's let's talk first here about the introduction to the disputation. One other thing, I, one other thing I want to say before I move on. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say that Malachi, the man Malachi, didn't write this book. I don't believe that. Uh, the, the word Malachi can either be a common noun or a proper noun. If it's a common noun, then it means that, that, there, that Malachi was the title of, of a prophet, that whoever the prophet might have been, we, we don't know. If it's a proper noun, then the guy's name was Malachi, and we know at least that much about him. You can read the, you can read the historical literature, and, and Jewish scholars and scholars today have gone, go back and forth on it. I'm going to go with the idea that it's a man whose name is Malachi. It's not just somebody unknown out there, but this was a man in Israel, contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah, and he had a tremendous job to do. So now we're going to follow a little bit of a form. We're going to look at an introduction to the disputation. We're going to read the disputation that we're focusing on. Then we're going to look at it in terms of the outline structure and all of this is in your the back of your folder someplace. We're going to look at the outline structure, then we're going to do some exposition of the passage, and then we'll have some questions at the end. This disputation is an oracle.
people against a foreign nation. Okay? Many of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament are oracles against a foreign nation. That is, God is speaking condemnation to a nation that is the enemy of Israel. In this case, the foreign nation in this oracle is Edom. Edom is the most frequently criticized, the most frequently targeted foreign nation by all of the prophets. Uh, it, it has the most inks used to write about it except for the uh, land of Egypt. Egypt has more words written against it um, because of what we see in some of the other prophets like Jeremiah, but there is no nation that is more frequently targeted than this nation of Edom. Edom, you may remember, is descended from Esau, who happened to be the brother of Jacob, and ultimately, ultimately what we're driving at as we look at this particular disputation, disputation number one, is reassurance to Israel of God's love for them. And again, put yourself in their, in their place. This was the kingdom of Solomon, and now it's just a kingdom of despair and desolation, naturally, spiritually. This great empire that, that is supposed to be the people of God is under, is under Gentile rule by the Persians. There's pestilence, there's disease, there, there's just this, this second-rate temple when they used to have Solomon's temple, and to be reassured of God's love would be a very positive thing. So I'd like the next person to start reading Malachi chapter 1, starting at verse 2. And we'll read through verse 5. I have loved you, said the Lord. David said, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not you so with us, brother, said the Lord? Yet I loved you. Turn to the Okay. All right. So now let's break it down. The main point of this disputation is an oracle against a foreign nation. This is what God is focusing on as a proof of his love to Israel. And that's the purpose of this disputation. It is to reassure the people of Israel that no enemy can alter God's plan for them. Okay, if you were there at the time of Malachi, you would wonder what happened to the, to the, to the Abrahamic covenant. This was going to be a great nation. The people of the, of, the, of, the, of the earth, the Gentiles, were going to call this nation blessed. This nation was going to be a blessing to a lot of people. The Palestinian covenant that you find recorded in the 30th chapter of Deuter Deuteronomy, that promised the children of Israel this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, everything they could possibly want. The Davidic covenant, you find it in 2 Samuel 7, and God promised that there was going to be a son of David to sit on the throne forever. Well, now all they have is this, this, this kind of uh, rinky temple that they had to rebuild, and, and Jerusalem is in a shambles. How in the world can God love us, and how can God's plan be intact in the face of all of this? 
And so God makes this assertion, God loves Israel in verse 2. And then in verse 2, Israel questions God, says, in what way has God loved Israel? And God says, in response, I have aligned myself with Israel against Edom. And then the implications is that God is a universal sovereign, not just a territorial God. You remember, you, you, you know enough about the Old Testament to know that a lot of the heathen worshipped local gods. They, the gods who had borders, gods who, who, were, who were very capricious and arbitrary. And, and you remember when Jonah was on the ship and, and everybody was praying to their various gods to try to save themselves. Israel's God is not a territorial God. Israel's God is internationally sovereign. So let's think about this disputation now. Look at, at verses uh, 2a and b, the first two parts of, of the disputation. And the Lord is confirming his love for Israel. And let me let me move to, to this. Let me get this out of the way so I can feel um, justified in at least giving you an example. Here is an example of a chiastic structure. It, 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 it's this reverse parallelism. And look at how this verse uh, reads. It starts out, I love you. That's what God is saying. I love you. And the second portion is Yahweh says that. Yahweh says, I love you. And then in this, and then the children of Israel say, you say, and this is, this is Israel say, and, and in part, the second A, in what way do you love us? So we have God speaking here. God making this assertion, I love you, says the Lord. You say, in what way do you love us? And it, it's sort of a reverse. It goes in and back out. This is a grammatical structure, and it, it, it confirms the precision of the text. There are more complicated chiastic structures in the book of uh, Malachi, but this is probably the most simple, and it shows what it means. God is saying one thing, the children of Israel are reflecting what God says, and the author is writing it in that kind of a, of a reverse or inverted parallelism in the statements in the scripture. That's all I'm going to say about that, but I want you to understand as you read this book, you will find those over and over again. And if you like language and you like language structure, you can outline these really easily, and it it does give you an idea that God had his hand in it very strongly. The Lord confirms his love for Israel. Israel says, in what way do you have you loved us? And then in 2C, God says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. So I want to think about that a little bit. The most common explanation that you hear for that passage of Scripture is that the word hated means loved less. I strongly disagree with that. I strongly disagree with that. I don't think that what God is saying here has really anything to do with affection toward one and, and disaffection toward another. You will find in, in many ancient uh, passages where this love-hate language is used, and what's being said there, more so than, than I love you and I hate your guts, 
what God is saying is, I love this one nation, in this case, Jacob, and I align myself with Jacob. I do not align myself with Esau, and therefore he's using the terminology of hatred. He is not necessarily saying that that, that it's a, a relationship of affection or not affection, but what's in view here is historical relationship. Now, it is true that that we have a very clear indication of divine election of nations here. You go back into the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, and God very clearly says, I chose Israel not because they were the greatest of all nations. In fact, they were the smallest of all nations, but God chose to place his love upon them. God was very clear to Abraham that that the promises, the covenantal promises were going to flow through Abraham. And you remember Abraham kind of got in a hurry and and he wasn't having a son as fast as he thought he would. And so he went to, one of you was her last night. He went to Hagar. Is that you? Okay, so he went to Hagar to try to get a surrogate son. and, And that son was Ishmael. And that has been nothing but problems for this world. In fact, the current Middle East conflict is basically because there was once a little boy named Ishmael. God has always identified the seed through which the blessing would come, and that's what he's doing here with with these two twin boys. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and they have been at conflict since, since before they came out of their mother's womb, both of them constant conflict between these two nations. Esau is the father of what we now know to be Edom. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with with Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. Jacob is the father of Israel. Esau is the father of Edom. They have always been. There has never been a time in scripture that these two nations have been allies with each other. They have always been against each other. So what we have here, when God says, I have loved Israel and I have hated Esau, God is saying here that I have elected Jacob. I have not elected Esau. I am going to follow the seed of redemptive history through the nation of Israel, not the nation of Edom. Any questions about that? The latter part of verse 3, God says very clearly that he has made desolate the possessions and heritage of Esau. Now, if you, if you look at your history, go, go to around 600-ish B.C., Esau was strong, Edom was strong up at the southern end of the Dead Sea. But, but there, there is some sort of historically unidentifiable nomadic tribes that swept into that area and started to drive Esau, Edom, down into the into the land of Judah, down into, into the Negev, into the desert portion of southern Israel, into Judah. And, and the, the children of Edom began to displace the children of 
Judah. They moved south, but but they were they were basically being driven out of their home and away from their culture, and they were they were almost a, a band of robbers and nomads by that time. But the But I want you to notice, what I'm saying is they were moving down into Judah and they had been persecuting the the children of Judah for years and years and years. God says, I'm going to make desolate all that. I'm going to make desolate all of their heritage. And notice what he says here. He says very clearly that in verse 4, that he makes three points God does about Edom. Edom will try to rebuild. Number two, God will not allow them to do so. And and number three, he promises their permanent demise. Edom will try to rebuild. God will, will not allow them to do so. And he promises their permanent demise. Now, if you were a contemporary of Malachi... And you were a 70-year-old person, you had lived in that environment for all of your life, and you knew nothing of the, um, there's that clipboard just came up, that you, you knew nothing of, of the grandeur that once was, only that it used to be there, this promise would be extremely important to you. You would really want to know is if, what Malachi was prophesying, and in fact what Obadiah prophesied and what Amos prophesied, that is the total destruction of Edom, would that really happen? This would be tremendously important to you to have this assurance. And God is saying to them, I have loved you, by, and I've evidenced that by virtue of the fact that I, have, that I have loved you and I have hated Edom. I have promised you that Edom will try to rebuild and they never will. They're over. And so then in verse 5, what we see is God's statement to Israel that he is universally sovereign. Go back to verse 5 for a minute. Somebody read us verse 5 again real quick. I'll put it up if you don't have it. Whoever's next. So God is promising not only the destruction of Edom, but he is promising that your eyes will see that destruction. He is saying to the people that that Malachi is prophesying to, you will see the destruction. You might say, how do you love me, God? And God says, I'll show you how I love you. I'll show you that I love you, that I hate Esau. I've aligned myself with you. I have disassociated myself with Esau. And I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to destroy them. I'm not going to allow them to rebuild. And your testimony of me is going to be that from the borders of Israel, all over what they knew as the world at that point, God is going to be sovereign. God is going to be magnified. So that's our first disputation. It is a disputation that shows God as universally sovereign and universally sovereign in the face of circumstances that were undesirable to the children of Israel, that were uh, circumstances of desolation and defeat. So now I'd like to think about some discussion questions. Why don't you turn to your in your book, if you have your book with you. This is where I'd like to have some input. 
can ask questions if you'd like, but I'd like you to think about these questions. We're going we're gonna to make some application of some principle to ourselves here. During times of challenge and discouragement in your life, in what way does God confirm his love toward you? If you haven't had times in your life that feel like um, post-exilic Judah, you will at some point. You may have them more than once in life. And there will be discouragement and it will seem like you are relationally desolate. He surrounds us by his people. He surrounds us by his people. Okay. Tell us about that. What is that? What do you mean by that? Um, like church community and stuff. People reaching out and being there, being listening there. So I, I agree with that. That's, that's a very good point. People who are around you, who are godly people, people who care for you, people who um, want to help, even if they may not know exactly everything that they have to do to, to minister to you, but they are there. So would you agree that you find assurance in knowing that that type of person is all around you in your church community? You can, you can feel that, I would assume, in your church community. And I would like to know, or at least like you to think about this, would other people look at you and say, yes, he or she is that kind of a person. If I've got a problem that I'm dealing with, that I can't deal with myself, that I maybe can't talk to my parents about, are there? can I look around and see people like that? Are you the kind of person they can look around and say, that's the type of person I want to go to. Safe people. Caring people. Trust, trustworthy people. Not slanderous. I would submit to you that that's one of the main purposes of a functional church body. When one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. When one member rejoices... All the members rejoice with him. How else does God speak to us? He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So as, as deep in the pit of despair as you might go, wouldn't the psalmist tell us that God is still there? There are times when maybe it isn't comfortable or you're not ready to reach out to someone. You're still wrestling with the issue internally. You can always have the assurance that God is there. Any, any other suggestions? God does not change. That's, that's very good. And we're going to see that later in Malachi. God doesn't change. If God loves you on your best day, does he love you on your worst day? The answer to that is yes. Does he love you more when you, on your good day than he does on your bad day? No. Do you ever um, get frustrated with somebody in your life and maybe you don't talk to them as nice the next time as you did the time before, Marcy? Yeah, it happens, doesn't it? But God isn't that way toward us, is he? 
There'd be no evidence of that. Does that mean that we can just go out and sin and do whatever we want and we can just come skipping right back to God and he is really glad that we have been out sinning and doing whatever we want and he's just really glad that we've done that? No, he's not. But God does not kick us to the curb in a situation like that and say, hey, I'm done with you. God is, God is very long-suffering. The Spirit of God, the, the Scripture says, lusts to envy. He is jealous to bring us back to God and to himself. Any other suggestions? things you'd expect to hear in your own church congregation. Yeah, that's that's upbuilding and, and that's inspiring. I try to make it a point if I'm in a restaurant and I see someone praying, if I'm pretty confident they're not, they're not Muslim, uh, I'll I will go over and, and and tell them I appreciate their their um, profession of faith, just to encourage them in that same way if I can. Um, Psalm 73 says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. One thing I want you to know, just like the children of Israel needed to know, is that God is guiding us. God is moving us from here to glory. And and we can have that confidence that, that God is with us and that he is going to guide us and that he is our portion. And even though our heart fails and our strength fails, God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. One of the things that we can always go back to in the times of our deepest despair is that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the, the next question I'd like to ask is this. Is it fair that God blesses some people materially more than others, especially when unbelievers seem more blessed than believers? Can you think of relevant scriptures that speak to this point? The wicked shall prosper. There, there are references to wicked prospering. In fact, let me go to one of those, Psalms 37, verses 34 and 36. Um, have that, I've, I've seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Just, just this massive, that would probably be a Maitian tree, I think, Russ, wouldn't it? Uh, just spreading himself as a massive tree. First of all, it's never fair to ask if it's fair, Okay. Just a little news flash for you from an old guy. Life is not fair. So if you were thinking that there's fairness out there, forget it. That's not the point. Uh, to say that God is not fair is, is not even a, a point worthy of discussion. God is sovereign. And that's 
that's a lot better than being fair. What I'm trying to drive at here is Israel was frustrated. As we go through this book, we're going to see the frustration of Israel that, that everything is going downhill. And does God even care what we do? Does God love us anymore? Israel was terribly frustrated with God. But it was the wrong perspective. There, there is such a thing that over the, over the centuries has come to be called common grace. And there is such a thing called specific grace. And common grace is, is what we... Um, have here in Matthew chapter 5 that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It does not matter how ungodly your next door neighbor is the likelihood is he's going to get the same amount of rainfall on his almond orchard as you're going to get on your almond orchard. He's going to get the same uh, sunshine is what you get. Common grace. It is available to everybody, the just and the unjust. And there, there is there's just the hard reality of life that there will be ungodly people who will seem to have blessing more than godly people. And we, we wonder why. People have wondered why for centuries. The children of Israel in Malachi's day wondered why that is. There's something you always have to remember, young people. It doesn't matter if your ungodly neighbor is the, the richest person in your neighborhood. If he's not a born-again believer, that money and that ground and that empire that he builds is going to burn with him. It's done. It's over. That's the end of it. Jesus said it like this. He has his reward. And so when you face circumstances that are difficult, and you, and you have times of struggle in your life, and you think, well, I know people who are less godly than I am, and, and, and they don't seem to have these problems. Two things to keep in mind. Number one, they probably have other problems that you don't have. And number two, you have the Lord Jesus, and that's enough. That's all you need. That's going to take you through the times of trouble in this life, and it's going to take you into eternity. One more question. And then I'll turn it over. How do you view God's sovereignty over your life? Because that's what God was talking to Israel about, that he is sovereign over them. Are you, are you okay with the idea that God's glory is more important than your pleasure? Maybe you've never thought about life in those terms. But everything is about God. Ultimately, the, the common denominator of everything in life, everything in human history is God's glory, not our pleasure, not our desires. So how do you feel about that? You, everybody okay with that? That, that? that ultimately you are not the master of your own life and, and eternity? You need to be okay with that. And that takes time, and I think it also, you know the old saying that some things happen kind of steady by jerks? Um, submission to God's sovereignty can be that way. It's easy to be submissive to God's sovereignty when everything is going well. It's e it would have been easy to be a member of the children of Israel in Solomon's time because of the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom. Might not have been so easy to be a, a subject in the time of King Rehoboam. Remember what he said? 
My father whipped you with whips, but I'm going to whip you with scorpions. His his finger was going to be stronger than Solomon's arm and, and on a very oppressive. Maybe it was easy to, to love God's sovereignty in the 1950s when things looked so nice in America and the economy was booming and people were happy and the world was secure. Adolf Hitler was gone. Japan was subjected. But is, is it as easy to be... Um, happy with the sovereignty of God and peaceful with the sovereignty of God in a day and time like today? These are questions that you'll all have to deal with through your lifetime. These are questions that you're going to have to wrestle with as young people, as middle-aged, as older people. Yes? I want to say That's right. That's a really good point. It's a paradigm shift, isn't it? Yeah, you won't be able to answer all these questions. Okay, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed more of yourself to us through the prophet Malachi, even in the first few verses of this great book. Father, would you touch our hearts with the truth that in Christ Jesus, you love us and have aligned yourself with us and all of the riches of your grace all of the riches of your kindness and love have been showered down upon us in Christ Jesus. And those are greater riches than anything available in this world. And Father, would you please impress upon our hearts at whatever stage of life we're in that you are in complete control of our individual lives and of this vast world that we live in. Father, I pray for the young people here that when the circumstances of life seem so overwhelming, when it seems like all about them is desolate, when you, they thought it would be glorious, when it seems like the enemies of God are getting the upper hand, may they always remember, Father, that you are great beyond the borders of Israel, that you are great throughout the world and you are great throughout eternity. And as each one seeks you, you will be found and you will bless, that you will grant eternal life and abundant life to each one. And that with that, we can be at peace and contentment and rest in Christ Jesus in whose worthy name we pray. Amen.